The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Guys, it's great to be with you this morning. Um, We are in a sermon series entitled All Things New. Uh, This is a way of us doing a series through the whole whole storyline of the Bible, uh, across the whole thing, and seeing what is God doing to restore us in Jesus. And so what we're doing is... We're starting out at the beginning portions because we need to know, like, what did God design and what did he create and how was it good? So we're at the very beginning of the Bible. Um, we were in last, last week, we were in Genesis 1 and 2. If you have a Bible, uh, we're actually going to be in Psalm 8. I know that's not quite the beginning, but it talks about the beginning. Um, so the book of Psalms is right in the middle of, a, of your Bible or thereabouts and to the left. The big numbers are the chapter numbers. The small numbers are the verse numbers. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty on the table out there. I will have all the verses up on the screen, and what we're going to do is we're going to start out reading a, a section from, Psalm, from Genesis 1, and then we're going to get going into Psalm 8. And the point of all of this, let me just kind of reiterate this, the point of all of this is to understand what does it mean for us to be human? What does it mean for us to be humans that God created and enjoys? And how does God renew us in Jesus together? So what we're going to do is we're going to read these passages together. We're going to pray for God's help, and then we're going to get going and looking at these together. Okay, so Genesis 1, I have verse 26 to 28 up on the screen for you. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the sea, over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the living things that moves on the earth. And then Psalm 8 is a commentary on that section. So Psalm 8 reads this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes and still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. I'm sorry. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works, I'm sorry, the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds and the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I got a few little lost in my reading there. Let's pray and ask for God's help, because obviously I need it. God, as we look at your word this morning, I pray that you would help us to hear of your goodness and your joy in creating us, and that we would find our humanity restored again in Jesus, and be confident and happy to be human. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. That's right, Ian. Um, let, me, let me read something for you. Let me see if you can kind of tag this on where you would recognize this this quote from. This is somebody, this is a conversation between two people. I'd like to share a revelation that I've had during my time here. 
It came to me while I was trying to classify your species, and I realized that humans are not actually mammals. Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops a natural equilibrium with the surrounding environment, but you humans do not. Instead, you multiply and multiply until every resource is consumed. The only way for you to survive is to spread to another area. There's another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. A virus. Human beings are a disease, a cancer on this planet. You are a plague, and we are the cure. The Matrix, bro. Agent Smith. Neo. Anybody see Matrix 4 trailer this week? Bro, it's on point. I'm here for the Keanu revolution. What happens with this scene is it brings us into this reality of what it means to be human. It's funny because here you have this, this program diagnosing what does it mean to be human. And when he looks at it, he says, well, you guys are a virus. You guys are a plague upon creation. You guys consume and consume and destroy and destroy and you kill each other and you kill the planet and you kill every living thing and then you move on and then let's terraform Mars and let's go do it to Mars instead. <laughs> That's the main point of what he's talking about. Maybe as we're talking about this whole thing of what it means to be human, you look at this and you can kind of begin to feel, you know what, my experience of what it means to be human, similarly, might be a little pessimistic, might be a negative, similar to Agent Smith's in The Matrix. You might look at your own experience and think, good grief, being me is hard enough. And you're saying God made this good? Like, this is the best that God can do. What my experience is of humanity and what it means to be a human, this is this is very good what God says in the Genesis account. Or you, you look at your history of your experience in life and you think the way people have treated you and what happened in your life and you think, so that's a part of God's very good plan for humanity and what we're made to be and that's the best that God can do. And we can look at that and we can think, well, if that's what God made us to be, it does not strike me as being very good. And if that's the best of what God did in terms of creating an image of himself I don't know if God's very good. What we want to look at here in these passages here in, in Genesis 1 and Psalm 8 is to understand what does it mean to be human, to try to peer through the veil of our negative experiences and see what's the good design under all of this that God made for us, how he made us to be, and then how does that lead us to experience what it means to be truly human in the hands of Jesus? You see, in in the Bible, there is this whole story we've been talking about, this creation, decreation, renewal, restoration, this whole kind of sweep of how God's made things and the storyline that he leads us through. And in order for us to understand what it means to be renewed in Jesus, we have to understand the original creation. So we have to kind of look back through the cloud and fog of what these negative experiences, maybe your Agent Smith in your head <laughs> experience of humanity of what it means to be human, and look back and say, okay, God, how did you make us to experience you. What does it mean to be created in the image of God, and why is that good? Because last week we looked at creation, and we saw over and over and over again, God is happy about creating the world. He's really happy about the world that he's made, the creation that he's made for us to enjoy, and at the pinnacle, the, the tippy top of it, so to speak, he's put humanity, man and woman, to be an expression of God himself. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. We want to look at this main point. Here's what we're going to say the main point of this sermon is that we want to, through looking at Psalm 8, and then we're going to kind of follow it through the Bible, put on the confidence of your humanity through Jesus Christ. All right? We want to put on, we want to come out of this confident. 
that it's okay, it's not merely okay, it's actually good to be human. And if you're, if you're like me, this last week was not great for me. Um, I, I probably need this, so I'm going to apologize ahead of time. I may be self-counseling from the pulpit <laughs> of like, uh, Jacob, you knucklehead, you need this as much as anybody else in this room, probably more. So as we're working through this, I hope that you follow me through as we walk through what it's Psalm 8 and then kind of we're going to land in Colossians, putting on confidence that it's a good thing. You might even call this like a Christ-centered self-esteem, so to speak. I know that that can kind of be like a, in Christian circles, self-esteem can kind of be a controversial word, but we really just want to say it's good. We want to walk out of here this morning feeling like God made it good for us to be humans and to experience that through Jesus. So we're going to look at Psalm 8. We're going to kind of unpack this quickly. We're going to look at the image of God or imaging God in Psalm 8. There's going to be kind of four or five things we're going to see here, but we want to look at Psalm 8, and I'm going to unpack a few of these things for us as we go along here, because if you understand, if you've been around Christian theology, people like to work, throw around like Latin terms. They're like, look, and throw out a Latin term. I must know God really well, or I must be super smart. It's called the Imago Dei. Some churches will like name themselves the Imago Dei Church. I'm just kind of like, dude, nobody knows what Imago Dei means, and you don't even speak Latin. Nobody spoke Latin for 2,000 years. What are you talking about? Anyhow, Imago Dei, this is the, the, the Latin phrase for the image of God, and Psalm 8 kind of delves into that, and what we want to do is kind of unpack this a little bit. So here we have, and we read this at the top of the sermon, but let me read a couple of verses as we go through this here. Verses 3 and 4, we see that humankind, humanity was created to be spiritual in our experience of what it means to be human. When you, when I look at your heavens, at the work of your fingers, O God, the heaven, the moon, and the stars which you have set in place, here's the important phrase in that. What is man or mankind or humankind, right? That's not men versus women. That's just a general term. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And the way that we see spirituality in this is that that, fur, that phrase, you care for him, right? God doesn't look at dogs. I love dogs. I would love to have a dog. <laughs> I hate cats. And I'm sure that God does not care about cats. But I'm sure that some of you think that God cares about cats. But the Bible doesn't talk about animals of the world and say, you know what? God really gives like specific care to Fluffy. <laughs> no, but it says here, God cares. He has an intimate relationship. He cares about humanity. That's where this whole spiritual language talk comes from. In Genesis, it says that God breathed his spirit into mankind. Here it says he cares. There's a relationship that's built out of this. That is what we're saying is essential to being hum human is a spiritual component, right? There is something in you that is immaterial, that's not, right? You can't take a knife and cut it out. <laughs> There's something in you that is essential to who you are that is spiritual and how you relate to God. And it starts with God caring and orienting towards us. That's that spiritual component. The second thing we want to see here in verses 2 and 5, out of the mouths of babes and infants, infants you have established strength before your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. And then verse 5, um, you, it says, You have made mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. What is going on with these phrases? What I'm pulling out here is I just want to say that we are created a physical being, right? And I know that when we look at this, we think like, well, where is physicality in this? Well, um, physicality is created in the sense of like, obviously in the Genesis account, you have God creating Adam, it says out of, out of clay, and then Eve out of the, the rib. There's a physical component to that. But verses 2, 
Um, I think it's funny that it says out of the mouths of babes and infants, and certainly that's our experience right now. My, my family is contributing to this. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, we have God's praises resounding in this very room. <laughs> we, there's a noise that they create. But it's interesting that here, the main point that what he's saying is what does it mean to be human is not the amount of power that you can achieve. You see that in verse 2 here? He's contrasting it with his enemies. God's enemies come, and they have power in their fist, in their weapons, in their political strength, and whatever it is. And essentially, to what, is, what, what David is saying, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength. Being dependent on God in your physical limitations of what it just simply means to be human is the very power of God being displayed through what it means to be human, not achieving something. Last week, we talked about what it means to be in a culture of striving for identity versus a receiving identity. And we talked about we receive our identity just simply because we're created in God's image. We're created man or woman, created, and we receive that and we live that out. We don't strive to become, you know, an Instagram influencer or some major power or whatever. We don't strive for our identity. We receive it. And here, we don't strive for our humanity. We simply receive it because we're created physical beings. Isn't it interesting that in the Genesis account, when God makes mankind, he makes Adam hungry. He makes Adam thirsty. He says, I'm going to create Adam. He could have made Adam without any desires at all. Here's this human being that just kind of walks through, no, no yearning, no desiring, or nothing. And yet he creates him physical with limitations. Babies and infants, they cry out for what? <laughs> Food. <laughs> they cry out or for pain. They cry out for attention. Right? They're all basic desires of our limitations. And that's what God's made us. And what Psalm 8 is telling us is that's good. It's good to be created that way. Then verses 4 and 5, let's keep going because I've got, I've got a ton of notes here and I really don't want to preach an hour-long sermon. David doesn't want me to preach one either, an hour-long sermon either. Verses 4 and 5. What is mankind that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you created that you created him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned him with glory and honor. Here in the very nature of the way God has made us, he's, called, he's made us personal, right? There's a personal identity, right? You notice that here, verse four, the, the second half of verse 4, the son of man that you care for him. Right, that's a particular person. Right, there is a specific person in mind when he says that. In in the uh, time of Jesus, there was a lot of debates about who is this person? Is this Adam that the, that the Psalm is talking about? Is this Moses that he's talking about? They were really big on Enoch. Enoch's a character from the early parts of Genesis. Is this Enoch? Who is this? Well, the New Testament comes in later and tells us who it is. It's Jesus. But the main point is that here, in the very nature of what it means to meditate on what it on what it means to be human. There's a personal identity, right? You have a personal identity. And then there's also a social identity, right? You are part of a family, a group of people called humanity, humankind, mankind. This is, this is where we have this both and of individual and social, right? At the very nature, you know, there has to be a social, uh, social aspect to who you are because there's a mom and a dad involved with being an individual person. But then there's also families that develop out of that. And there's families who relate to families. And there's cultures. There's a whole host of what it means. There's an interconnection between your personal identity and the people around you. And then the final thing here is verse 6 to 8. You have given him dominion 
over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Here you can hear the echo of Genesis 1 going on here. And this is the, you might call this the creation mandate. You might call this the covenant of creation. You can call this a lot of things. But this is at the very nature of what we of what it means to be human is to rule over the world, to rule over creation, to steward creation in a direction of what we talked about last week, to take Eden from this little, you know, square mile and expand it across the world. That was the original design of humanity, to take a little bit of Eden and make the whole world Eden, to Edenize creation. It's interesting that in doing that, when... When you see that in Genesis 2, when Adam is creating and, and ruling over creation, he doesn't, he doesn't do a self-check on when he's living out his humanity. God says, I want you to name all the animals. I want you to name them all. And Adam, you don't see a picture of Adam being like, okay, all right, God's right here. I think this thing eats ants. Ant eater? <laughs> You don't see him second-guessing himself. He lives out his humanity and thinks, this thing eats ants. You know what? We're going to call this anteater. And this thing with the stripies, zebra, makes no sense. <laughs> but he lives out his humanity and just being who he is and naming creation. And he's not second-guessing himself. He's not having to, like, check himself. He's just fully being himself, living out the glory of who God has created him to be. So let me just take all this together. There's a whole lot more we could say here, right? Are you guys kind of, you guys tracking with me here? We're cool? Okay. We could say a lot more. We could say more about humanity's intellectual capacities to engage and understand the world, right? We could take it, say a lot more about his social interaction and what that means about what it means to be human. We could say a lot more about um, sexuality and gender and how that relates to being human. But at the end of the day, we want to pull all these things together from Psalm 8, and certainly there's more places we could look at, and say, what does it mean to be human? What does that image of God mean? Is the essential difference between you and your pet, <laughs> whatever that pet is, if it's a cat <laughs> or a dog, whatever it is, what's the essential difference? Because you can talk and your animals can't, I mean, unless you're in Narnia, right? What's the difference? Is it because you put on clothes and your animals don't? Is it because you get married and your animals don't? or because you have a job and your animals don't? Like, what's the essential difference between you and the creation world around us? What I want to propose is that instead of saying that we bear the image of God or that we have the image of God, you and all of your humanity, you are the whole image of God. In all of who you are, the fact that you have hands and feet and eyes and ears a soul, a mind, all of it comes together to say the whole package is the imaging out of who God is. There's not one part that you can cut off and say, now you have less image of God. The whole thing is imaging out of God. Herman Bavink, he is a uh, Dutch theologian from about 100 years ago. Um, wicked smart guy. Wicked smart. He, uh, he says this about the image of God. And I've, I've highlighted a little phrase in there that I want us to kind of latch on to. Man forms a unity with the material and spiritual world, a mirror of a universe, a connecting link, compendium, the epitome of all nature, a microcosm, and precisely on that account, also the image and likeness of God, his son and heir, a micro-divine being. 
He is the prophet who explains God and proclaims his excellencies. He is the priest who, who consecrates himself with all that is created to God as a holy offering. He is the king who guides and governs all things in justice and, re- and rectitude. He in all his points is the one who is still higher in richer sense is the revelation of the image of God. To him and only is the only begotten of the Father, the firstborn of all creature, creatures, Adam, the Son of God, who was a type of Christ. The main point I want to pull out of that is you, you were created to be what Herman Baving calls a micro-divine being. In all of your physicalness, in all of your spirituality, in all of your emotional capacity, in all of your intellectual strengths and weaknesses, everything about you is created to be, in the wholeness of who you are, a micro-divine being. Everything about you. Not, not just one part, and not just selected parts. You and the fullness of who you are. Created to be imaging out God himself. And why is this important? Let me just say two things, and then we'll move on to seeing how Jesus fits into the picture on this. Why is this important? It is important for you, amidst all the ways in which you experience a broken world, sinful, a broken world, that in the midst of all of that, you see that there is a wholeness, a goodness about who you are created in the hands of God himself. We don't need to get rid of our physical bodies in order to be truly human. We don't need to get rid of our intellectual capacities to be truly human. We don't have to get rid of our emotional hurts and pains to be truly human. Everything about you was and is designed by God to be good and happy and full in Him. Right? We will have, a, we will have our, our culture around us. will continue to tell us one way or another what it means to be human. What it means to be, what is the nature of humanity. And we must, at the end of the day, recognize fully and truly to be you and all the limitations and frailties and ugh of what it means to be human, yet amidst all the darkness that there is there that we're going to talk about, there is a core essence of what it means to be human that is good. It is good to be a human, both male and female, whatever it is. God has made you, and it is good to be enjoyed because, like I said, the culture will continue to kind of push this question of what does it mean to be human. So, for example, anybody anybody very familiar with artificial intelligence? Like, I'm definitely not going to go off on a, on a bandwagon here on this. But you guys, because I, I don't have a science degree, first of all. Uh, I have read science fiction, though. <laughs> so, artificial intelligence is something that continually comes up. Let me just kind of list out a few things. So, Blade Runner, ever seen the movie Blade Runner? Anybody? Fantastic movie. It meditates on the very nature of what does it mean for us to create create people that have all the physical properties of being human, and yet they're created and not human. So can they be human or not? Right? Um, Ghost in the Shell, the, the, the manga? Anybody? Ghost in the Shell? Right. Okay, I'm going to also acknowledge some of these things have some adult content in them that you may want to be more sensitive to. Uh, Ghost in the Shell, right, Data from Star Trek, Next Generation. Anybody? Some people are a little bit older to know what Star Trek Next Generation is. Star Trek Next Generation, Data, Okay. Um, Ek Machina came out a few years ago. Um, Avengers Age of Ultron, right? Ultron, bro, artificial intelligence, right? He, and then within that you have Vision, right? Another artificial intelligence taking on a, a, a humanoid body. And then you got, so out of that you got WandaVision on Disney+. Plus. I haven't watched it because it seems too sad to watch right now. Black Mirror, 
Westworld. Have you guys seen? I, don't, I've, I haven't watched Westworld. It's not. I just watching shows is not my thing. Altered Carbon on Netflix. Right. The list could go on and on and on. Right. This whole idea of artificial intelligence is basically saying the most important part about you is your intellectual capacity to rule the world. And so let's just get rid of the fr the frailties of being able to break your bones or die, and let's just like go onto the computers and live our world there. Right. <laughs> that that's if that's what human nature is then that makes total sense, right? My intellectual capacity is more important. But no, God has made you so that you, it's important for you to be human, for you to be able to breathe, right? You can't be human without the, without the capacity to breathe, right? You can't be human without the capacity to feel pain or to taste a pizza with a Diet Coke <laughs> or whatever else it is that you like. I don't like pizza and Diet Coke, but I know some people do. But Whatever it is, to be human is to experience the fullness of what this is, and we will continually have to go back to this. No, I don't need to have a cell phone implanted in my tooth to be able to be full of human. I am good enough as it is just to be human on my own in God's hands. Okay, now what we're going to say is, are you guys tracking with me? Are we, are we getting bored here? Okay. I'm just saying, like, if we're getting bored, we can just kind of... Genesis 2, we looked at. Genesis 3 is where we're going to preach next week. The fall comes in the, into, the, into the mix. Satan, sin, and death enter the picture. And so our humanity is cracked wide open and broken from the inside out. Okay? We're just going to take that at face value. Peter's going to do, uh, lead us through that next week to understand what does that mean for us. But death and sin come into the world and cause massive havoc so that we have in the midst of us <laughs> this panic of our existence. We're created to be like God. And so to live forever in, in infinitely new forms of what it means to be human, and yet death and sin enter the picture, and so we're continually having this pull of Satan, sin, and death away from the life of God. So that's why, for example, I don't know if you guys saw this last week, Jeff Bezos is like investing major money in immortality because he doesn't want to die. Dude, you can be the richest man in the world. Go to the outer atmosphere of the planet and then still be fundamentally facing the same problems that we all do. What do I do about death? The man can't get away from it. He can go, dude, he can go to Mars and he still would not get away from this massive internal struggle that we all experience. What do we do about death and what it means to be human? So that's where anybody who's been to Sunday school knows Jesus <laughs> comes into the picture. So like I said, we're going to go on a second point here. What does it mean to be not only creating the image of God, now we're going to be looking at the image of Christ. And our connection point here in Psalm 8 is verse 4 where it says, what is the Son of Man that you are mindful of him? That is the phrase that kept getting used every time that the apostles would think about what does it mean for Jesus to fit in the picture of what does it mean to be human? Because Psalm 8 gets quoted all over the place through the, through the New Testament. It is quoted... Loads of times, at least uh, at least eight times, it comes up in explicit reference. But the reason it gets used is because they're looking at Psalm eight verse four and saying, "Jesus, what is Jesus that God is that God cares for him, that He is mindful of him?" And every time that the apostles and the the New Testament wants to say something along the lines of, um, "How do we get out of this whole mess of Satan, sin, and death?" They want to say something along the lines of, "Jesus renewed and restored." our royal humanity through God's surprising grace of Jesus taking on flesh, living a perfect life in our place, dying, rising again. That whole swoop of things. So 
Psalm, uh, Psalm 8 comes up in Matthew 21, where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because the kids are singing about him coming into the temple. He says, out of the mouths of babes, that's Psalm 8. He's saying, like, look, the kids singing is better than all of your theology thinking. Right? Romans 8, where he's saying, um, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's a reference to he has put all things under the, under the domain of his feet. Right? Again, in Ephesians 8, uh, Ephesians 1, where it says he's created a new humanity. He's put all things under his feet to create a new human culture, a new human society where we live with him. Hebrews 2, where he says that Jesus was a little bit lower than the angels so that we are raised up to the right hand of God, where we have a compassionate Savior who lives before us. So you're getting the picture. Psalm it comes up all the time. What I want to do is I want to land in Colossians 1. We're going to spend our time, Colossians 1 and 3, to kind of finish things out here. Colossians 1 is where we find Jesus being portrayed as the new human, the new man who has saved us into a new humanity, a renewed humanity in God himself. I'm going to turn there for a second. Here we go. Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, that's where Satan, sin, and death land us, and our broken humanity, and transferred us in the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You see, Humanity was created to be royal and to rule over this world. And here we have, sorry about that water over there, guys. Um, here we have Jesus saving us out of Satan's sin and death as our place, um, saving us into the new humanity through the free forgiveness of all our intentional and unintentional sin. The image of God here in verse 15 comes up. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through him and for him. See, here in Jesus, again, as in Psalm 8, we have this picture of, of Jesus not only being created in the image of God, he is the recasting the whole human of what it means to be, to be human. But here he creates this society around him. You see, it, he is in relation to these angelic creatures and all the spiritual world and the physical world. He is, in, he is in relationship to all of those, and yet he is the ruler of all things. And here in verse 17, this new remember how we talked about what does it mean to be human? That there's a social element to that? Well, here we have verse 17, and he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is creating this exact thing that we're experiencing right now in all of its messiness. Verse 19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You see, what it, but the, the broken micro-divine beings that we are are now offered a way into reconciliation with God through God's taking on of human flesh to be among us through his own death. This is a grace. See, it's a grace to be created in the image of God. We don't deserve to be imaging God, but he's created us to be all that we are to express who he is. And yet, in the midst of having wrecked that, here we have a second deeper grace. 
we have a second grace that is deeper still, that the judgment that we should receive has been removed, and we are now defined by being reconciled to God, being made fresh before Him, being made new before Him to experience a new fellowship and to experience the treasuring of God's heart. See, for in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Did you notice that phrase that God was pleased to do all of this, to bring us afresh to Him, to send Jesus to die in our place, to experience the fullness of humanity? You know, Jesus probably got a cold. Jesus probably had a bad work day. Jesus, I mean, bro, I don't know what your family background is. I mean, you might have a messed up family. But can you imagine being sinless and then living with a sinful family? Like, I know you might be a victim of your family, but being sinless? Jesus walked through all of that, experienced the fullness of humanity, and he was pleased to do that so that he can then lead us into a renewing experience of what it means to be God's image, right? To experience what that is. Let's just close and we'll finish this. And you who were once alien and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. You see, we can talk about the spirituality of things and say there's so much like, oh, there's so spiritual truth. But it was important. You, could, you can still, right now, you can go and pinch Jesus. Like, it's important. It's essential to who he is that he has a physical body. The image of God, the, re- the revealing of who God is, this, you know, if God were to take a selfie, so to speak, it requires God, for God to take a selfie, it requires a physical body, right? We don't believe that spiritual things are more important than physical things. It's so important to God that your physical body is healed and renewed and restored in Jesus that he not only took on a body of flesh, but continues to have a body now so that when we talk about what does it mean to be fully human in Jesus, we're talking about someone who knows what it's like to get tired at the end of the day or to be so exhausted by 8 o'clock in the morning after having slept all night or to experience emotional trauma and pain, or to experience mental struggles. He knows all of those things, and he still does know what it's like to have those realities as a part of your existence, and he is beside you in the fullness of his humanity to help you experience what it means to be human now. I mean, it's crazy to think. Jesus knows the experience of getting a headache, not because like he hasn't drunk enough water, but because of the amount of decisions that he has to make. He knows what decision fatigue feels like, right? He knows like all the things that we struggle with, that what's the interaction between them, physical bodies, mental, spiritual, emotional. That's essential to re-imaging who God is. And Jesus has taken on all of those things. And he has done them to overcome the power of sin through them over us so that we can experience if the fresh experience of being the image of God. So we're going to close out by looking at Colossians 3. You guys cool to hang with me for a second? Colossians 3 is where we're going to kind of we're going to land this. Colossians 3 is where Jesus, where we begin to experience, okay, what does it mean to now? We've talked about the image of God, how it has been broken, how Jesus relives this entire experience of what it means to be created in the image of God. And here we want to be re-imaging Christ. This is how we're going to close this out. Colossians 10. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, when Colossians 3 says that, it's referring back to Colossians 1, where it says, 
He was created in the image of God. Who is that created in the image of God? That's Jesus. So we're saying, put on then, verse 10, the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image, you can just substitute this in, the image of Jesus. If you're going to be renewed in your humanity, to be renewed in your experience of life, it must be in the image of Jesus. Here, there is neither no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, Jesus, in the creating of a new humanity, He removes, He strips away all the ways in which we would like to create power structures, understanding what does it mean to be a better human, a lower human. What does it mean to be us versus them? All of these dynamics of what it means to be other different types of humanity. And he says, no, all that for being new and created new has to go away. It all has to go away. And the only thing that matters for you to experience new humanity is being in Christ, to have a relationship of dependence upon him. Otherwise, all those other things are just going to be ways of creating a type of humanity that's going to be subhuman. You see, he creates a humanity that is free and fully pleased, pleasing in God's sight. And it is, for you, it is a freedom from cultural expectations, power structures. Maybe it's a culture that you experience or are a part of that defines who you are. Maybe it's your sin and weakness that defines who you are. In Christ, all of those things that seem to kind of cling on to us, like there's some, there's a, a friend network of mine where uh, somebody's, you know, people... Have do things where they stab each other in the back. And the phrase that he's kind of getting used like is like, oh, they're never going to overcome, overcome that. They're going to be shamed forever for having done what they've done or whatever it is. It's like, well, maybe amongst you guys, that's true. And maybe you know what that's like to have done something or to have something done to you where you feel like, I can never get over this. In Jesus, what it is saying is that you have a perpetual, everyday, new opportunity, new invitation to a fresh identity, a fresh humanity that is free from the power of those things. It is free from the power of all the ways in which... Because when Paul lays out uncircumcised, circumcised, Greek or Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, right? he's talking about social standings. Right? And he goes on to talk about there's no more male or female. And he's not saying like your physical bodies could change. He's just talking about the social standing of those things and how they factor into the world around you. You're free from all that stuff. Whatever those things mean about you, they don't matter in Jesus. And free to what? You are free, here verses 11 and 12, or put in 12, but put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He goes on to say, bearing, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other as Christ has forgiven you. You see, what it means is that you are now no longer defined by sin and death and a culture around you, but you are defined by Jesus. And what is Jesus defined by? The fullness of humanity is a loving heart and a compassion towards your brothers and sisters. That's what it means to be human. All right, you're created to be in Jesus, renewed and a renewed version of yourself. Right? This, re- this focus on renewal, I think, for you and for me is essential to understand there are broken parts of us. Yeah, I get it. 
There's broken parts of us that we have to wrestle through and work through. But at the end of the day, it says here that God was pleased to dwell with us and is continued to be pleased to dwell among us. And if God is pleased to dwell with you, even though you may hate yourself, even though you may hate major components of yourself and the way you process the world around you, God has a stronger, more powerful, life-altering word to say about your very nature and humanity. He says, I am pleased to be with you. I'm pleased about who you are. I am not bothered by all the weakness and sin and despair and depression and all that stuff. God is not bothered by any of that stuff. In fact, the power that those things would have over you, sin, weakness, despair, depression, all those things, Jesus, in taking on the cross, he purchased them and they're away from you and the power that they have over you so that he dwells with you, having taken all the negative things away from you. They, they belong to Jesus now. And he then expresses his absolute confidence and compassion and love for you in saying, I'm going to take this whole mess of a project. I've bought the worst parts. Let's make this whole thing new again. He is making you a renewed, redeemed version of you. Can you imagine what that's like? That sounds like faith and hope to me. That sounds like I want to have that type of grace. Are you guys cool if I read one more quote and we kind of close us out or are we getting tired? I'm getting thumbs up. If I get a thumbs down, I'll close this whole thing down. So don't. C.S. Lewis says this. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption as you now meet, such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one of one of the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting spoilers. See, C.S. Lewis, I think, gives us a pathway forward for understanding how do we understand not only our humanity, but the humanity of those around us that we work with, our family with, do whatever. Nobody in this room is a mere mortal. God could snap his finger and make a glorified version of, the, of any of us, and the rest of us in the room will be tempted to worship that person for how glorious they are. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying, which I think reflects the tone of the Bible. What does this mean for us? A humility that we live not with mere people, but we live in a culture of micro-divine beings. Right? There are, last I saw... 110,000 micro-divine beings in the city borders of Manchester. If you include the suburbs, there's about a quarter million micro-divine beings around this city. Just Manchester. Each one of them is somebody that is created to reflect the image of God. And you are among them. What an awe of humility that I get to be a part of this thing that God's done. There is a confidence that we should have in this. Right? 
you you may not like who you are. <laughs> you you may not actually enjoy the way God has made you, but God does. And there's something at the center of who you are that you need help seeing that should help you walk with confidence that I don't need to be second-guessing myself as much. I don't know if it's comparing yourself to others, comparing yourself to expectations, comparing your you know, insecurities or whatever it is that walk and kind of badger you. But there is a confidence in Jesus that you should have of being human. God has made you, and he loves dwelling with us. what we just looked at. He loves dwelling among you in all of who you are. I will say this, and I'm going to toe the line on this one. In our politics, I am increasingly, increasingly concerned with the demeaning and degrading way in which we use our political language. Left, right, center, far left, far right, I don't care. For example, the way in which this whole thing, like the phrase, my body, my choice, has gotten used by both the left and the right. By the left to say abortion stuff, on the right to say vaccine stuff. Everybody uses it. And if you're, if you're thinking through this psalm with me, Psalm 8, Genesis 1, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? That little aphorism does not even come close to capturing the drama and reality of what it means to be human regarding all the choices that it seems to create simplistic answers to. Right? If your politics can be simply boiled down to little phrases, then you have not wrestled clearly enough with the Bible itself to know that God himself is among us. People are complex. Politics is like just incredibly stupid, you know, but simplistic models are insufficient for the complex realities of being human. And let us end with this one. I think it speaks to the politics one and your work life tomorrow or whatever that is. We are offered an invitation here in Colossians 12, 3.12, but put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. How would it reshape how you engage with others to see them as micro-divine beings that God loves and pursues? People who are shuffling towards uh, eternal hell or eternal life. We engage in our work life with people who are twisted versions of their micro-divine self, who need a compassionate heart towards them. How would it change the way you interact with them? The people that you bill, the people that you work with, the people that you work, that are in the grocery line with you, the people that are on your neighborhood and street, the people that do annoying things in your neighborhood or building complex. If you interacted with them as though, before I tried to dominate them, let me understand them as somebody who is created in the image of God. And now, in Christ, I have the opportunity to re-image Christ to them and how I understand my interactions with them. Because you've never met a mere mortal. You've only ever met people who are created in the eternal image, who are imaging God himself. So, let's end with this, revisiting the beginning. I pray that as we walk forward in the psalm, that we put on the confidence of our humanity through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, as we've looked at this psalm together, would you help us? We've covered a lot of territory, and I pray that you would help us to understand what it means to be human in your hands and to reflect Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We offer this. Um, does anybody have any questions? I know that you can text them to my phone number, all that stuff. I'm not seeing it. I, wait, hold on. Am I seeing something here?
All right, I got a couple. You guys cool if I do a couple Q&A? Okay, I got a couple. All right. Um, you said human beings experience breathing, tasting, smelling, etc. What about people who can't do these sort of things, right? That is an area in which we have the... Um, are we made in the image of God because Jesus is in human form and he has always been, so were we made like him? Um, all right, so there's two questions here. Uh, what do we say about, you know, I said it's essential to be human to be able to breathe, right? Um, well, I think it, if you can't breathe, you're no longer going to be alive and be human, so that's going to be kind of a problem. But breathing, tasting, you know, there, there's people who can't taste things, right? There's people who have disabilities, um, all those sort of things. What I'm trying to say there is that there's the capacity to have those things. So, for example, people who are blind or deaf or something like that, right? There's the capacity to have those realities and experiences. And to be whole and human is to have those things rehealed and renewed, which will happen in the resurrection. But that does not mean that somebody is, therefore, like, unhuman because they don't have the capacity to do those things. Does that make sense? Uh, second question is, um, we are made in the image of God because Jesus is in human form and he has always been um, so we're made like him. Yeah, this is, this is getting into some big theology stuff. Main point is um, you're created to be human because God always intended to become incarnate in Jesus. That's the main point of the Bible. God always intended to become and dwell among his people, and so we were created human to be ex to experience life beside him. I know that I just threw a theological bomb there. If you, don't, um, if you have any question about that, we can revisit that one. But that then interacts like chapters and chapters of systematic theology. Okay, uh, second question. Um, how do we reconcile our understanding that we are flawed every day? We have simple thoughts, and many days we carry out sinful acts with the thought that everything we are is imaging God. It would seem that we can't fully image God since we are broken, and He is not. Well, I think that you're getting into the answer with your back question, with the, with the phrase at the end there. We are. We don't have to earn our position with who with our imaging God by perfectly imaging him. Jesus has done that for us. Jesus has perfectly imaged God. He has perfectly shown us what God is like. And he has perfectly taken on the punishment for the ways in which we defile the image of God in us. So the, way in which we, the ways in which we sin and break the image of God in us, or we use other people and, 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 and break the image of God in them, those things are offered mercy and forgiveness through Jesus so that as we do sin, thought, word, deed, whatever it is, we have a, a Savior who is compassionate and merciful to forgive the ways in which we've broken the creation and yet still offers us this miracle of mercy to be able to continue to reflect Him. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.